The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. Uh, That's a a, uh, publication that focuses on pretty much on gold and energy stocks, but primarily on gold and uh, precious metals more than anything else these days. Uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, uh, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And I also like to tell you each week that we do have a special introductory offer for first-time subscribers. Um, it's a lower introductory price, and uh, for each of these letters separately, uh, you can call Claudio Bossi uh, in New York in our office at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426 or go to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com to sign up for all three newsletters. I like to say that the best website to go to now to keep track of everything that I am personally doing, including writing my newsletter, uh, this radio show, as well as videos that I do, CEO interviews with many very outstanding, promising companies, primarily in the, uh, in the mining sector, uh, go to jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R media.com. Also, I have some pe- appearances there on CNBC, Fox, BNN, and last week uh, was uh, my first time on Bloomberg Television. So you can go and see uh, what I'm thinking or what I have been thinking about some of these key topics. Of course, if you listen to this show every week, you have a pretty good idea of where I'm coming from and where my guests are coming from. Not all from the same direction, but certainly... Uh, leaning towards free market economics and analysis from that vantage point. Uh, so that's, uh, that's really where this, where this uh, show is coming from. I should thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors also for making this show economically viable. Uh, for the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Crocodile Gold Corp., Go West Limited, Travale Mining Corporation, Entertopia Corporation, Smash Minerals Corp., Ariga Gold Corp., 
Sand Gold Corp. and Palangio Explorations. Well, this week our main guest is David McIlvaney. He's the president of the McIlvaney Financial Companies. We're going to talk to him about the housing depression in America and how that is impacting our economy at large. David will no doubt have a lot to say about how to invest your money given the environment that we're in. Most of our guests on this show believe that gold in one form or another should be a prominent asset in your portfolio. But what if the price of gold rises to unthinkable heights of thousands of dollars per ounce as the dollar heads towards the dustbin of history, as many people are predicting? What are the chances then of gold being confiscated again, as Roosevelt did against the American people in the 1930s? What about the Dodd-Frank bill? That is uh, being about, it's going to be coming about, uh, actually coming into law uh, middle of this month, I believe. A provision in that bill reportedly puts some restrictions against trading gold. Could this be a sign of things to come regarding the rights of Americans to own the yellow metal? In the second half of today's show, I'm going to be talking to Ron Paul's chief of staff, Jeff Deist. Uh, he'll be with us to discuss the Dodd-Frank anti-gold trading legislation and also to discuss uh, bigger questions about the possible gold confiscation uh, and other matters that we may bring up uh, to Jeff as well. We do talk about economics and economic theory on this show, and most of what we talk about is from, as I say, the Austrian economic perspective. At the same time, we do we do want to try to apply those theories, not just, you know, um, think about them, but how can we put them into action? How can we profit from them? Having an Austrian economic perspective, which is truly a free market perspective, well, that's enabled me and many other newsletter writers of like mind uh, and investment advisors to do extremely well for their subscribers going back over the last 10 years or so. That is true, I believe, because ultimately the laws of economics will trump statist policies that are enacted to provide goodies to political cronies. And if you define fascism as government and large corporate interests teaming up uh, to enrich themselves at the expense of free markets, then I think America is now, more than ever, a fascist economy, I hate to say, but I'm afraid it's so. If you understand how continuous intervention against natural market forces lead to dislocations in the economy, lead to inefficiencies in the economy, then you can be in a much better position to invest in a way to profit from those distortions that are caused by political manipulation, manipulation of the markets. The constant manipulation of interest rates, for example, to levels that reward consumption and penalize savings is a major policy for decades now in America, and that has led us down the road to a socialist path that not only is leading us to a depletion of wealth in America, but it is also in the process of destroying our economy and our markets with enormous indebtedness. The result of those policies was predictable many years ago to people like me and others. It's not, you know, these things that have taken place, these horrible events in the economy were not unforeseen by a goodly number of people who viewed the markets from an Austrian perspective. Gold was selling at $255 10 years ago or so. No, I couldn't predict the exact height it would go to, nor will I even attempt to do so in the future, but only to say that as the politicians continue, as the central bankers continue to debase the currency, as they create more and more units, trillions of dollars out of thin air, then, in nominal terms at least, the price of gold is going to go up, as well as all kinds of other tangible items. Well, the policymakers are operating on conventional wisdom. That's Keynesianism. And they continue to act on that dogma, even though it simply doesn't work. It didn't work in the 1930s. 
uh, maybe a little bit more of it, more efficiently will work this time, so the thinking goes. But it's not working now. There are too many vested interests, however, in the status quo to change anything or even to recognize that current policies are not working. And so the opportunities in gold and silver and other materials producing companies continue, which is why we have sponsors on this show from the mining industry primarily. The mining sector is a basic wealth creating sector, and the higher prices for gold and silver and other commodities provides uh, real wealth protection in a place to hide from the inevitable destruction of paper money. In just a few minutes, I will be speaking with Chantal Lavoie. He's the president and CEO of Crocodile Gold, the new president and CEO, I should say. I own a few shares of this company, and it has been a recommendation in my newsletter that hasn't done all that well. So I'm going to be talking to Chantal to try to determine whether or not Crocodile Gold at its depressed price might not be a great buy at this point in time. Um, in the second hour of today's show, I will be speaking also with Al Shevsky. He's the president of Paley Mountain. Uh, that's a company uh, with a very sizable uranium and rare earth deposit, and they just come out some, with some exciting news today, uh, a new preliminary economic assessment that I'm sure Al will tell us about. But now I'm happy to say, once again, for a long, long time, I have with me Chen Lin. Chen has uh, been in the process of vacationing and moving from one house to the next to New Jersey, so he has not been uh, available to us on this show, but it's really a pleasure to have him back. Welcome, Chen. Good to have you back. Thank you, Jay. Well, uh, are you settled in now, Chen, to your new residence in New Jersey? Yeah, almost. <laughs> almost? Yeah. You know, I, I can tell you that I know, uh, you know, as a guy that's had a few more trips around the sun than you have, that uh, moving once you have uh, a family uh, and you start collecting stuff gets to be quite a task. So I, I guess uh, I think I know what you're going through uh, with your two children and your wife and your family and all that. But uh, let's just get right to the markets now, Chen. You've been away for a little while, but, but uh, you did put out a missive this morning, I believe, to your subscribers. Uh, what are your thoughts on the market right now? Oh, I think it's an interesting period. In the summer, you know, a lot of people don't um, look at the market. Okay, they just uh, sometimes they just follow the trend, and then once the, the earning comes out in uh, in a couple of weeks, maybe you know more 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 or less, and then people will be shocked, you know, like uh, because nobody really following the market. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel the the gold price has been particularly high this summer. Uh, usually, summer would be weak period for gold, but it mm-hmm. didn't happen this year. And end of the end of year rally can be particularly very hard. Mm-hmm. So we could have a, a big breakout in the, of gold stock, gold and gold stock in the coming you know months. Mm-hmm. So I'm quite bullish, optimistic. You know, mm-hmm. also I own a lot of energy stock as well. Uh, oil stock looks like stabilized around 90, and I hope it drops a little bit. Below 90, but you know it just touched a little bit. That's it. Uh, so it seems that the demand still very strong. And the Baron came out with the report that I prepared for 150 dollar oil. My goodness, wow. I hope it won't go that high. But you know, for my oil company, they are low cost producers. 80 dollar, 90 dollar, they're making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So so I'm happy, you know, with with settle with 90 dollar oil. So they would they will have a tremendous cash flow coming in. So uh, looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Well, Chen, uh, I want to ask you about uh, Mart. Tell us about Mart. Mart, Mart Resources, I believe it is, with a, with a company that's producing tremendous amounts of cash flow relative to its price. 
take a minute and talk to us about March. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Bernard, just came back from the AGM. You know, they have a meeting mm-hmm. with the CEO, CFO, and all the board members. Mm-hmm. It, it's really, really upbeat. Uh, the company uh, set to uh, increase their production dramatically. They're drilling, the current they're drilling another well. Uh, assume this well will be successful because, you know, it's drilling on the same structure. Uh, they, will, they will move to another side, drill another well. Then they will reach the current pipeline limit of about 18,000 barrels per day, and the company should generate about 200 million cash flow after tax. Wow. Actually, a bit more than that, more than 200 million, but 200 million is kind of conservative number. Mm-hmm. So it's like 40 cents versus a 50 cents stock price. It's just amazing. They will have a, a lot of money coming in every month. They can do a lot of things, you know. Um, Expand the field, do share buyback, whatever you can think about. It's just too much cash coming in mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the company, uh, and then they will build a pipeline. They're very interesting. They they plan to build a big pipeline, so they have some big plan for their field. So they want to build a eighty, eight zero, eighty thousand barrel per day pipeline. Mm. So you think about it, if they're pumping eighteen thousand, they already have two hundred million cash flow. What eighty thousand? <laughs> barrel value will do. I, I don't want to think about that because it, it, it just uh, will be so so shocking, right? Yeah. So, right. so I'm pretty very very optimistic. I'm holding is my current in my largest position, and I'm holding my shares. Yeah. Well, Chen, uh, I, I guess maybe we've only got about a minute uh, to go before we talk to Chantal Lavoie of Crocodile Gold. We're going to do a commercial, and then we're going to talk to him. But I guess we should let our listeners know that that project is in uh, Nigeria, isn't it? And probably there is some uh, apprehension about political risk in Nigeria. Yeah, that's correct. There, there will be, a, you know, there's political risk. I think major thing would, you know, unless my feeling is unless they go to a civil war in Nigeria, like mm-hmm. Libya does it, this company will do fine because mm-hmm. they have so much cash flow coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's really an interesting thing if you can buy a, a company that's producing, basically selling at annual cash flows with that kind of growth potential. Well, uh, yes, there's political risk, but one-to-one and with, with that kind of growth, it would still seem to have some upside potential unless we're missing something here, Chen. Uh, Chen, we do have to go to a commercial break. Um, you may want to stick around and listen to Chantal Ovois, who is the new president of Crocodile Gold. Uh, but either way, um, good talking to you again, and we'll look to have you back on the show again on a regular basis. Thank you very much, Chen. Yeah, thank Folks, you, don't, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the break with Chantal Lavoie. He's the new president and CEO of Crocodile Gold. Don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. 
Enertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Enertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNSX exchange. Trevally Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Trevally trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Chantal Lavoie. Uh, he is the new president and CEO of Crocodile Gold Corp. That is an emergency, an emerging gold producer, I should mention, uh, frequently on this show in the past, uh, but this is the first time Chantal uh, has been with us as the new president of the company. Mr. Uh, Lavoie uh, is a professional mining engineer with extensive experience in mining operations and projects. Uh, he has spent the last eight years at De Beers Canada, where he was responsible for the uh, Canadian operations of De Beers, including Snap Lake and Victor Mines, the Gachogu project, and was acting CEO of De Beers. Mr. Lavoie has also worked uh, for Barrick Gold Corporation and Gold Strike in Nevada and the AUR Resources, Inc. at the former Love Court mine. Welcome, uh, 
welcome, welcome, Mr. Lavoie, to turning hard times into good times. Uh, thanks, Jay, for having me on the show. Really good to have you on the show. We know that uh, a good number of the companies that we talk to on this show are exploration companies, and they are headed up by exploration geologists. And uh, the one thing that I would tell people that are new to the mining industry, you know, a lot of people that don't understand mining think it's just digging a hole in the ground. It is an extremely uh, complex operation, gold mining, even even open pit mines, but. Uh, it takes an awful lot of different talents, doesn't it, to, to run a mine? Yeah, definitely. I think, Jay, you know, when we look at, you know, from exploration, obviously the focus with geologists uh, moving into operation, you need different skill sets. And even when I think about geologists, you got you got some of the people who are really focused around greenfield exploration, whereas we move a project from the, from the greenfield exploration into operation, you need different type of geology. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you need to get these guys to start working very closely with, uh, with the mining engineers. Exactly right. And so I think um, I, I just recently talked to another sponsor of this show um, uh, is Sandgold, and they recently brought an engineer on, and, and things really seem to be turning around for them. And I'm, I'm hoping the same thing is uh, going to take place with you at the helm now. Chantal, because I am a shareholder of this company, and it is a recommendation in my newsletter. Uh, I know that you have had a lot of extremely wet weather, like, you know, 100-year floods or something like that. I mean, it's been wetter than it's been in a long, long time in Australia, and that has impacted your operations during the first quarter of this year when you reported a loss, I believe, of $7 million. Uh, but, and so your, your gold production was held back a lot in your open pit operations there by the flooding. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about how much that may have impacted you negatively during the first quarter? Well, probably the biggest challenge is, is uh, what happens is some of the open pits that we're, uh, we're operating are several kilometers away from uh, our process plant. Uh-huh. So one of, the, one of the biggest issues with, like you mentioned, you know, kind of historic rain, historical rainfalls is that we lose access to these pits during the wet season. Uh-huh. What happened also, because the wet season was more extreme than usual, normally, you know, we start recovering production around March, April, and because of the uh, extreme weather, we weren't able to start production back before essentially April. So our entire first quarter was impacted. We were hoping to have uh, some early production out of the pits. And again, because of the weather, uh, we were delayed. Also, normally what we try to do is stockpile ore before the wet season. And Mm -hmm. we had about three or four weeks of stockpile ore. But again, because the wet season was longer and more extreme, we got cut short uh, in the first quarter. So Long story short, we ended up uh, not producing all the ounces that we were expecting. Mm-hmm. I guess what you could do uh, then, if you had anticipated or if you had known that it was going to be such a severe wet season, it would have been possible to mine to do more stockpiling? Yeah, they, and essentially that's the strategy moving, moving forward. You know, one, uh, we're already reviewing the, uh, the 12 to 18 months plan and uh, already included an additional basically six to eight weeks of stockpile prior to the wet seasons. We want to make sure that if, for whatever reason, we get into similar conditions, we're going to have uh, additional ore to uh, make sure our process bank is fed Mm -hmm. uh, towards the end of the wet season. Yeah. uh, So how much gold did you produce? uh, Now, before I ask you that question, let me just ask, when did you take over as the president and CEO of the company officially? 
officially on June uh, on June seventeenth. Okay. Uh, so obviously I'm playing a bit of catch up, but uh, had a great uh, couple of weeks with uh, with the team down in Australia last week, and mm -hmm. uh, so really trying to get up to speed with yeah. uh, the work that's been done so far this year, and then what's coming up in the next uh, 12 to 24 months. Right. You, so you really have just literally a, you're you're there a couple of weeks, and that's about yep. it so far. Yep. Um, how much gold was produced during the first quarter, and and how did that how did that fall short? How much did that fall short from projections? If you our, product, our production was just uh, just over fifteen thousand, actually just under fifteen thousand ounces. Mm -hmm. we were hoping to get closer to twenty. So you could say uh, roughly we were four to five thousand ounces short of where we wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, starting the second quarter, we've been uh, the, uh, the team and uh, the operation have been doing very good. Uh, we've been cash flow positive since April, and I, you know, we're obviously just putting the final numbers together. It looks like we had a very, a very good second quarter, and we're off to uh, basically meet. Uh, we're off to meeting uh, the call in terms of production for the third and fourth quarter of this year. So, what would those numbers be? Well, right now, you know, our guidance for this year, we're saying that we're going to be producing between 80,000, 85,000 and 100,000 ounces. You know, I still believe we're going to make the guidance. Uh, we're probably going to be in the neighborhood of 90, 95,000, but I'm pretty comfortable, you know, having, after having sat down with the team and reviewing, you know, both the Oppenpits operation, but as well our Cosmo project, that's an underground project, I feel comfortable that we're going to meet the guidance for this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what sort of cost would you expect then on a per cash cost on a per ounce basis, let's say, if, um, if you get into that range? Yeah. Well, the initial guidance prior, I guess, prior to uh, the Q1 result, the initial guidance was between 875 to 975. That's the mm -hmm. guidance we issued early in February. Obviously, mm -hmm. with the first result, uh, Q1 result, the, the costs were higher than expected. So I would say that... Uh, I would expect the guidance to be probably slightly higher, so maybe you know in the 1,000, you know 1,100 range. But again, you know it's really going to depend how the rest of the year goes. Which I said, you know, like I mentioned, I believe it's going to be in, uh, you know going fairly well. Mm -hmm. yeah. oh, um, so you're looking at, at producing around upwards to 100,000 ounces uh, per year right now. What uh, do you have in terms of current reserves and resources, and what is the possibility of increasing uh, your resources, and what is the possibility of getting beyond 100,000 ounces uh, per year down the road sometime into the future? Yeah, well, I, I, it's an excellent question. Actually, that's one of the reasons what, that's what attracted me at, at, uh, for, to kind of uh, join the team of Crocodile Go. I think it, right now, in terms of reserve, we got a, just over 600,000 ounces, 650,000. We've got close to 5 million ounces of resource. Mm -hmm. uh, I strongly believe, having, after having sat down with Bill Nielsen and the exploration team, uh, our target for this year is to bring the reserve to over a million ounces. Mm -hmm. Try to bring the resources to over 6 million ounces. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of potential, and I think the challenge for the exploration team is really to focus. There's so many targets, and it's really to be disciplined uh, as to where, you know, which ore body do we work first, second, and third. We expect right now we've got four to, uh, three to four drills already drilling at various places, some underground, some on surface. By the end of September, we'll probably have up to 12 different uh, drills drilling in the various deposits. Wow. 
to the second part of your question, I strongly believe that crocodile gold is probably at 200 to 250,000 ounces per year within the next two to three years. Mm. Really, again, there's great potential. I think the Cosmo project that we're bring on, online right now, which is our flagship, uh, the development uh, was underground. We met with the team there and, and the new contractor that was brought on board in, uh, in April, I believe. Very high quality work, very high level of uh, skill sets uh, from the individual that were brought in. That project alone is going to represent about 50% of all our ounces next year. And we've got within the Union Reef area, that's where a process plan is located, there's also other good potential to go underground, to go in areas that were mined before by companies such as uh, uh, Anglo Gold. There's some mm -hmm. great potential of ore bodies that are similar to our Cosmo projects. So I wouldn't be surprised that uh, within the next year or so, uh, we could get another underground high-grade deposit to start working on. Mm. I would imagine uh, you, you talk about your cost numbers, which are definitely on the high side uh, these days. You can get by with that because we have five fifteen hundred dollar gold. Yeah. But I'm guessing that if you get to two hundred thousand ounces or so as you ramp up your production, your average cost will will go down. And especially, I think your Cosmo costs may be lower than some of your other mines. Oh yeah, definitely. Right now, I don't have the, the sheet in front of me, but our Cosmo cost per ounce are going to be below six hundred dollars mm -hmm. so that's why it's really going to change the cost base of our organization and again if we find another uh not if but when we brought another ore body underground ore or body uh in operation definitely it's going to drive our average cost i would say in the in the below 700 for sure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have um, a lot of capital expenditures this year. Are you financed for those expenditures, or are you going to have to raise more money? No, no. From a financial standpoint, the company is in very, very good position. You know, we've got over $7,500 million right now in the bank. We've got no debt. Uh, I believe, you know, having looked at, at the cash flow profile for the rest of the year, I'd be surprised that we're going to finish the year between 45 and $50 million still in the bank. Mm -hmm. really, really, and, and then, you know, our cash. The revenue stream is really going to pick up by the fourth quarter. So I think we're, we're in an excellent position uh, to complete the year and to start uh, 2012. Well, certainly uh, the market is skeptical, I would say. I, I guess there's been some disappointments. Certainly the weather plays uh, has played a major role in the, in the shortfall. Mm -hmm. uh, but the market is, the last I looked, was, something, was appraising your, or really valuing the ounces in the ground at something like $45, and that compares with sort of your peers at $145 an ounce on average. Uh, what do you think it's going to take for the market to price you more on an average scale? Do you think it's uh, just, just executing and making uh, what you're saying, um, you're projecting come true? Yeah, and I think, you know, gee, I was asked the same question by an uh, investor last week. We stopped from coming from Australia. We stopped in, in Zurich and Geneva, and, and that's basically what I told people. People ask me, why, what, you know, how do you explain where you are, you know, the stock versus your competitors. And I think it's just the fact that people are, you know, are disappointed of our Q1 results. And I think we just got to execute the plan. And once we can demonstrate, I think we're going to come fairly soon with our Q2 results. Obviously, I can't speak about them yet. But, uh, you know, we're, when we can demonstrate to people that we've got basically things under control that, this issue about the bad weather and the delay created in our, pro in our operations 
is behind us and that we're actually ramping up that our Cosmo project is is on on uh, on schedule. I think really the uh, I think the the shares are going to appreciate. I think people yeah. just they want to see execution of the plan. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it, it's worth noting that uh, higher cost projects. Uh, are more leveraged to the price of gold, too. And if Chen Lin was talking to us a little earlier, uh, is very bullish on gold. Uh, a lot of people are these days, I guess. But, you know, he notes that usually gold is, is weak during the summer. This year it's not really lost much of anything. And he's looking for a higher gold price even still. And I know you can't run your company on that basis, but nonetheless, I would just mention to to uh, listeners to the show that when you have a high cost structure, once you start raising the price of gold beyond that structure, you you can see a nice pop sometimes in the in the price of the shares. Is there anything else you might like to mention before we conclude our discussion this uh, this time? No. Well, the only thing I would say, Jay, and again, I think there's there's huge potential, and that's what I saw when when the team, you know, Mike Hoffman and Stan Buddy convinced me to to join them. I think there's huge potential. Uh, with our operation down in Australia, I think we've got to demonstrate that we can execute the plan. I think also we got to look at it from a, you know being a lean operation. You know, not don't bank on on gold going up. If it goes up, it's going to be great. But I think how we can reward our investors is show that we can operate these uh, yeah, these mines, you know, and make money uh, you know at a very very low cost base. So I think that's going to be the focus, and uh, hopefully I'll be able. I'll work with the team, but definitely great, great team down there, and it's just a question of uh, working the plan. Excellent. Well, very good. Well, we'll certainly be watching uh, to see how you're doing uh, for my subscribers as well as people on this show. Really great to meet up with you and talk to you. Thank you very much uh, for the insights on Crocodile Gold, and uh, we'll hope to have you back again sometime soon. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to be back uh, with our main guest this week. He's David McIlvaney. At least he's scheduled to come back. My engineers are saying we have not heard from him yet, uh, but we're going to try, and um, hopefully David will be with us. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Business Network, the bottom line in business. Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Origa's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Origa Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. 
Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. This program is brought to you by Sandgold at www.sandgold.ca. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ten gold mining region. Sandgold continues to show tremendous exploration success. With two mines already in production, the company is now revealing a new gold mining trend. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www. Travali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Travali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I am pleased to have with me for the second time David McIlvaney. David is the president of McIlvaney Financial Companies, McIlvaney Wealth Management, and ICA. That's a 36-year-old precious metals brokerage firm, and he has been a featured speaker on radio and around the country analyzing world events and their impact on the global economy and financial markets. Uh, David can be heard weekly on his market commentary at www.mcalvany.com. David is a graduate of Biola University and an associate member of Keble College, Oxford University, where he studied philosophy and political theory. He then went on to achieve honors as a top salesman with Southwestern Company and gained extensive business expertise there with Morgan Stanley in California. His international research has given him a global perspective of developments around the world, which helps him avoid focusing too narrowly in his analysis of investment and risk uh, in any given asset category. Welcome, David, again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Jay, great, great to be back with you again. 
Really good to have you. Uh, I'd like to focus perhaps today uh, on the housing market. And the reason I'd like to do that is because it seems to me that this time it is different in terms of the housing sector compared to other, let's say, cyclical um, uh, you know, business cycles. I'm looking at a housing start uh, chart um, that shows non, non-farm housing starts from 1946 up to the present. And what we see, whenever we've had sort of recessions, we've seen a very sharp V-shaped recovery in housing starts and construction. This time we're not seeing that, and that's one observation. And uh, um, another observation is that previously we would get below a million starts per year, but very, very briefly. Um, There was one, I think, in 1990 got down to 800,000 starts. Well, this time... Uh, now, for almost a year, we've been below 600,000. It's been on either side of 600,000. But the housing market, the housing starts, the new construction is going nowhere. And it seems to me that housing has got to be a driving force in a recovery for an economy, and it's not happening. Why do you think that's so? Well, Jay, I think if you look back at Fed policy and, and how supportive the Fed has been for the housing market in general, whether it's the Greenspan era or now under Bernanke, this is, this is what's interesting. You, you really have a cornerstone of family wealth in mm-hmm. this uh, part of the balance sheet. You know, when people count their equity, it usually is, is the lion's share of, of their personal wealth. Throw in a 401k, and there you've probably got 90% of mm-hmm. someone's liquid assets or illiquid assets. But we've always been concerned with the wealth effect, and, mm-hmm. and you've seen a positive impact when there's growth in the 401k or growth in your home, what happens? People go out and spend, and they feel that they can do so responsibly and freely because on a balance sheet basis, if it's not cash flow, certainly on a balance sheet basis, they, they look like they're, and they're, they feel like they're doing well. Mm-hmm. You could look at what we have today and say, well, if we don't have the wealth effect in play, perhaps we have the poverty effect in play. And that's where people are really tightening their belts, having to recalibrate. They don't feel good about taking the extra vacation. They don't feel good about buying the extra this or that or the other. Everything discretionary gets blown out, and a lot of that comes back to housing because, again, at least in our culture, this is the cornerstone of family wealth. So if the Fed wants people to get out and spend, you can anticipate that they're going to be highly accommodative. Mm -hmm. They've run into some problems, though. It's almost impossible to get a loan. I mean, we, we could talk almost ad nauseum about the different things that have changed since 2006, but it's now very, very difficult looking at housing, uh, anticipating recovery anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly uh, getting a loan is more difficult, and we had an interesting, uh, an interesting guest here, Professor Arbach from the University of, uh, of Texas, that talked about how the Fed or how banks are now being paid for their reserves. He gave that as one of the reasons why they're not lending. That is, banks don't have to take risk, but the government will pay them, or the taxpayers, of course, end up paying the banks for the reserves they're holding now. When we saw in the 1930s, not we saw, I'm not that old, but, but, uh, and you're a lot younger than I am, but reading back in the 1930s, the same thing happened. The banks were flush with cash. They pumped huge amounts of money into the system, and the banks would not lend. It was, uh, the analogy was pushing on a string. Uh, do you think what, but, it, but getting to the housing market now, we don't see new housing starts, and I'm guessing that a good part of the reason for that also is not only that banks can't, won't lend, but that there's so much excess housing out on the market, 
why do you need to build new ones, right? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at what's in the foreclosure and problem line today, you've got roughly three years of inventory. Mm-hmm. And what that doesn't include, 1.8 million is, is, is that number. What that doesn't include is the roughly 5 million homes which are either 90 days delinquent or coming into what could potentially be the foreclosure pipeline. So, you know, it depends on how you look at it. Do we have a three-year backlog of homes to be sold or do we have a five- to seven-year backlog mm-hmm. of homes to be sold? So massive, massive oversupply on the one hand. Demand, you know, your first-time home buyer, he's not stepping up to the plate. If you wanted to move from one neighborhood to the other, you've got to sell your home. That's hard to do because a lot of people won't qualify for the loan. Uh, And so you're finding more and more labor immobility. One of the things that has been the hallmark of success here in our economy in the United States, if you look back over 50 to 70 years, is you can go where the jobs are. Right. Can't do that today without affecting your credit because basically you've got to send the keys into the bank if you're just going to walk away. Selling a home today, unless you're going to discount it supremely, is is really the only option. Well, no, it's a well. How did we get into this mess? I mean, you you were saying a moment ago about how uh, you know actually consumers are doing what I think long term needs to be done. That is tightening the belt, saving instead of spending. And yet, the policies seem to be geared towards consumption. Again, why in the world would anybody save their money when arguably you're getting negative real rates of return on treasuries uh, right now? So what needs to be done? Well, you know, I mean, it depends if that's if that's sort of a policy-level question or an academic question, because at the level of academics, we've got everyone who's now practicing policy back in D.C., assuming that John Maynard Keynes it was was a brilliant guy. Now, granted, he was a brilliant guy. <laughs> the question is, were his ideas true and workable under yeah. any or all circumstances? And what we found is that they are workable under certain circumstances and a miserable failure in other circumstances such as this. And, you mm-hmm. know, you talk about pushing on a string. You can create as much liquidity as you want, and that was one of the things that Keynes was a proponent of, but that liquidity still has to get its way into the system. Borrowers have to borrow, lenders have to lend, and that's not happening. I think what, what most of our, our, our Fed managers and, and policy practitioners back in D.C. are forgetting is that when you go through a bubble, and clearly real estate was in a bubble just like tech stocks were in a bubble in the 90s, just like Japanese stocks were in a bubble before that. I mean, you could go back over the last 100 years and see that regularly, once an asset class has had its day in the sun, it's generally 20 to 25 years before that same asset class recovers to its previous peaks. So, hmm. I mean, we've already done, we've already pushed past the 20-year mark, and Japanese equities have yet to recover. Yeah. We are <laughs> 12 years in to the cycle uh, of recovery in the NASDAQ, and we're less than half of the way back to previous peak numbers. So, you know, it's not hard for the imagination to say, we'll tack on another eight years, and maybe we're back to quote-unquote break-even for anyone <laughs> who was buying tech stocks in 99 and 2000. I know that's tough news and and probably a hard pill to swallow, but the reality is the prices that we saw circa 2005, 6, and late 2007, they weren't real. They weren't real. And and to get back to those numbers, you're talking about a complete reconfiguration of the market. Practically a whole generation has Mm -hmm. to come into the housing market and, and believe that this makes sense as an investment. 
So I think I saw the other day that the, overall the average uh, house price in the U.S. is back to 2004 levels, I think, perhaps, something like that, or maybe earlier. Yeah. But, you know, David, when you think about this, though, uh, if it's going to take, what, 15 years to work out of this thing, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, still, yeah. Um, yeah. Then, then, and you realize that housing is such a main uh, component of growth in the economy, uh, that suggests to me that we could be looking at a very, very weak economic picture for some years to come in the U.S. Do you agree? I, I would agree. And, you know, I think one of the things that might be helpful for your listeners, and this is just a perhaps a different way of, of thinking of prices, because, you know, we could say on average real estate's off 33% from its peak. And, you know, if you go select communities, whether it's uh, Florida, Nevada, Southern California, uh, Arizona, in some instances you're off 50, 60 percent. What's really telling for me is that from peak to trough, if you look at real estate over, say, a 100-year cycle, peaks usually, and I'm going to price this in gold ounces rather than dollar figures because we really don't have a constant dollar through the last 100 years. Exactly. Peak numbers for a house, you're talking about 600 ounces of gold mm-hmm. and the trough somewhere between 50 and 80. Hmm. And, you know, there's some variance, of course, by the neighborhood that you're in and, and, and the state you're in and, and what have you. But from you're basically talking about an 80% drop from peak to trough, not in nominal terms, but in relative terms, specifically in gold ounces. Where are we at today? Uh, about 120 ounces, so we're well on our way. You could argue that the majority of the decline has occurred, but that it still has a little bit further to go. Again, I put that in relative terms, not nominal terms, because the other part of the equation here is the price of metals, at least for this relative comparison. You could say, well, maybe there's only another 10 or 15% decline in real estate in nominal Mm -hmm. terms, and I would say that's probably accurate. Mm Mm-hmm. That means gold's got a lot further to go, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to see that happen here in the next 36 to 48 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, a rising gold price. Correct. Yeah. And uh, do we get QE3? QE3 is a sensitive subject. It's got to, there's got to be some sort of catastrophe in the marketplace for the Fed to be able to justify the action, because judging by... QE2, in retrospect, everyone would now say that was a mistake. That was a mistake. It didn't accomplish what we wanted it to. Uh, It was supposed to bring greater stability to the Treasury market. In fact, it it jumped interest rates and uh, created uh, the impression of greater inflation in the marketplace. So inflation entered the public's awareness for the first time in a long, long time here in the U.S., that's that's I'm not sure that's something that they want to to really become a part of our consciousness mm-hmm. inflation and and what that means for the consumer mm-hmm. so will they tempt will, will they be tempted by QE3 they'll only do it if we see let's say a 20 to 30% decline in the stock market mm-hmm. well let's say 15 to 20% mm-hmm. then they're going to feel like they're justified in coming in and propping up the market mm. Well, that's um, uh, very interesting because uh, QE3, I, I, guess with the, I guess you're saying that most of the mainstream economists, I know that, David, people like you and I and people on primarily Austrian-leaning thinkers uh, would agree would, that, that it hasn't worked, but what you're saying essentially is even the mainstream is, is questioning the wisdom of QE2 now. 
Well, and, and when the general public begins to ask questions about the veracity of numbers, you know, generally speaking, the public is just going to take what they get, whether it's from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the National Bureau of Economic Research. It's coming from an authority that knows more than they do. And if you look mm-hmm. at the last 30 to 40 years of public school education, there's one thing that we've all been indoctrinated with, and that's trust your authorities. They know better. It, you know, so the fact that people are now asking the question, this can't be right. We can't have 3% inflation. I mean, I'm, I'm paying more in every category. When I go to the pump, when I go to the grocery store, when I go to this, that, and the other, how is it possible that it's only 3%? That's what I mean. The general public is beginning to question whether or not they have been treated fairly and, frankly, whether they've been treated like adults. Yeah, really. Uh, so you, I, I guess one of the concerns has to be in the Fed uh, with the policymakers is this psychology change, this, this notion, because one of, the, uh, one of the items that has a lot to do with whether you have inflation or deflation is uh, velocity of money, I believe. It is, you know, if people, uh, if people are starting to worry that tomorrow's prices are going to be higher than they are today, they might start stockpiling and buying things ahead of time. Uh, if they can, if they have the purchasing power, which is which raises another question. In the U.S., of course, we uh, we've had another very interesting uh, person on this show, uh, a retail analyst who's talked about uh, he's talked about how 80% of Americans are seeing their living standards decline, 20% are doing okay or better, uh, and you at the same time, then you have this enormous rise in the in the price of the food and energy, which you have to have. Average people have to spend a big percentage of their budgets on those staying alive items. So uh, w- I guess there's, there's a couple of things at play here. I mean, one thing is if the psychology changes, people are going to buy today what they have to have tomorrow. And they're going to, I mean, there's, there's that issue of velocity where you don't trust the currency anymore. You try to get rid of the currency and buy stuff. Um, but haven't we seen that happen perhaps on the part of, in, of professional investors? Is that where QE2 has gone to a large extent? We've had Professor Auerbach on this show again talking about how I think he said something like only 53% of the money that was pumped into the banking system got out, or maybe it was 47% and 53% stayed in, it's one or the other, and that the banks aren't lending. Um, uh, you know, so could this be really what's going on here? Is is that there's really a worry about this velocity issue? Yeah, and I think you know this is this is a critical issue. Academics haven't really paid attention to velocity since the 1970s, and it was popular to write about it then, and then it kind of fell off the map for a while. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be coming back in vogue as as a conversation piece amongst those in the ivory tower because the issue is being forced from the ground level up, and you know essentially velocity is the number of times a dollar bill goes through the economy, wherein you spend it, it gets deposited with the person that you spent it with, it gets lent out again, mm-hmm. gets redeposited. How many times, essentially, what is the footprint of a single dollar in the economy? Right. And it could be five, it could be 10, it could be 15 times. And when velocity is broken, when velocity is broken, you, know, you, you basically have a stagnant economy. The problem is, let's say Bernanke increases available liquidity to the marketplace by two or three trillion dollars. Well, that in itself is a big number, but the real issue is if velocity increases and the Fed does not rein in on that liquidity and bring it back home, basically take it out of the economy, Mm -hmm. then you end up with a 10, 
15, 20 trillion dollar footprint in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And here's what's deceptive. At the front end, you know, you, you mentioned people go ahead and start buying things because they realize that their dollar is going to be worth less. Mm-hmm. And they stockpile. What's right. deceptive is with that economic activity, it looks like things are returning to normal. Yeah. And it's a little bit like being at the front end of a monetary tidal wave. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, for anyone who loves to surf, you say, this is the greatest swell ever, and you don't realize how big it's going to be. Yeah. You know, when it, when it begins to create that tube, you think, wow, I just pulled into the big one. And in fact, that's what happens. You get overwhelmed by velocity, and it's unexpected. Well, the obvious thing is, why wouldn't Bernanke pull it in and, and, and limit liquidity in the market. Mm-hmm. The problem is this, this is where the Fed adopting more than one mandate compromises their ability to do the right thing at the right time. Yeah. And, and I, you know, full employment, that's an issue for them. They're going yeah. to keep ample liquidity in the system until they get the employment number back to a reasonable level. Nine percent, mm-hmm. they're scared to death. Yeah. Well, I, and you wonder what the chances of that would be, given this housing market that, as we just said, is not going to come back anytime soon. Certainly, you'd have to say that the housing market then is in a secular bear market. It's not a cyclical one. I mean, we saw the cycles. I'm looking at again at this housing start chart, and you see this sharp V-shaped bottoms on the housing construction market. Now we're just seeing this meandering around for months and months and months at sub-600,000 starts a year. And, David, I'm looking at this chart of the uh, St. Louis Adjusted Monetary Base. And, again, what you were saying to me, this is frightening because this is, this is really where I suppose where hyperinflation can come from. Also, if you have the dollar starts to lose its value and we have to pay huge amounts of money for all the stuff we have to import now, then you're looking at, and then you add that with velocity and all this monetary base, which is you know straight off the page, basically, uh, uh, post-Lehman Brothers, uh, are, are you, um, we're going to have to go to break here in a couple of minutes, but just throw this question out to you next. Um, in terms of the great inflation-deflation debate, we've had people on this show on both sides of the coin. We've had Robert Prechter on the deflation side, oh, Miss Shedlack, Ian Gordon, uh, Bob Hoy, I would categorize on that side of the ledger. And then we've had lots of people like Mark Faber and Ron Paul, uh, Doug Casey, and a, a lot of different people who are on the inflation side. And you know, those guys are absolutely sure we're going in one direction, and the deflationists think we're going in the other direction. Where do you come down on this? Gee, I, I think this is going to be a little ambiguous, but I think, you know, deep in our psychology as human beings, we want answers. We, we, we want black and white, mainly because we don't want to be left in gray right. into things that are indetermined. And I, I, th- I think my position is that we'll see both, and it's going to be selective and not necessarily systemic, where you see deflation hit particular asset classes and blow them up. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, you're going to see a mass panic. And I guess what we're really talking about is asset inflation and deflation, not necessarily credit or monetary mm-hmm. uh, inflation or deflation. To me, you know, the idea that there's anything but monetary inflation is, is almost absurd. You look, at, you look at the St. Louis adjusted monetary base, do you see deflation here? No. So from a monetary standpoint, it's inflation, 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 no question. But in terms of assets, you will see uh, a real bifurcation and, and a differentiation between different asset classes, some being punished terribly by deflation and others getting the benefit uh, of, of all the monetary uh, stimulus. Of course, the obvious one is the one we've just been talking about for the, first, uh, the last few minutes here, and that's housing. 
anything else on the deflation side? I can't think of too many things. Well, you know, on, on the deflation side, you've got a lot of paper out there. And, yeah. it's, it, you know, the, the amount of, of uh, securitized loans, I mean, we mm-hmm. just, just last month, went back to uh, the, the CDO and CLO market. They, they've been quiet and haven't issued any CDOs or CLOs since 2007. Now we're back to these hybrid securitized products again. And there is a tremendous amount of unwind yet to occur with those products. You see this happening right now in Europe. They're not allowing there to be a default because they don't want a repricing of debt. Even if you want to look at last week's, last week's auction for AIG's assets. Yeah. It started impacting the, the, the credit markets negatively yeah. because everyone looked around and said, wait a minute, if AIG's assets are worth X numbers on the, X pennies on the dollar, that means the same stuff that I have on my balance sheet is equally impaired. That's yeah. the problem. David, we've got to go to a, to a commercial break now. When we come back, we're going to pick up on this fascinating story, the great credit deflation that's going on, the paper deflation. Don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back with David McElvaney. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Entertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Entertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNN. SX Exchange. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Origa's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Origa Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. 
Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. <laughs> 